The Athletic. I'm Ian McIntosh and welcome to the Football Manager Show sponsored by LiveScore. On today's show, are you shipping goals from set pieces? We're talking about the love that dare not speak its name, defensive set piece plans. Now trust me on this, they could make the difference to your save. And what's your summer save of choice? Are you like me? Are you casting a bit of a master rebuilder's eye on Everton? We'll talk to someone who knows that club inside out. Plus, we've got another live score legend of the game for you and another FM confessional. So let's get started. But before we get on to defensive set pieces, uh, what do Tony Shields, We Dunk and Matty YB have in common? Well, they are good good people because they left positive reviews about this podcast on apple pods and positive reviews drive us the more of them appear the higher up we go uh, in the charts and the more pain and misery we push down on the royal horticultural society and their teams of gardening bastards we will dominate that chart but only with your help so if you can just take 30 seconds just to review this podcast ah oh god it makes a lot of difference think of all the people you'll upset in the gardening community. Enough of that unpleasantness. They know what they are. You may remember me over the course of this show, over the course of the last year, continually banging on about the 1.6% statistic of people who do all of their set pieces plans. That's that's it. 1.6% of people have a plan for every set piece available, which means that 98.4% of you aren't just doing the basic stuff. Most of you, I would imagine, are doing offensive set pieces or at least near post corners. But what about defensive ones? I think that number's much lower. With us to discuss this less travelled path is CJ Ransom. Welcome back to the show, CJ. Great to be back, guys. Great to be back. Important topic too. Always a pleasure to have you here. Now, for anyone who uh, who hasn't heard you before, go back and listen to all the podcasts because you've been on loads of them. But what do you do all day? I'm a QA lead analyst for the match engine, so I play the match engine all day. I test all the different tactics, all the player roles, and of course, all the set pieces, and just make sure everything's nice and balanced. That sounds like a wonderful way to to live your life. It is a fantastic time. Marvellous stuff. And now we're, we're discussing Everton later in the show because producer Steve was absolutely appalled by their profligacy at set pieces <laughs> over the weekend. I think they may have checked out for the season. Uh, and it's something that's very important in this game, isn't it? Because if you don't do anything, if you have critical errors in your team like short people at the near post, you can cause yourself a lot of problems, can't you? Yeah, so the default settings... They can work for some teams, but there's so many different tactics and different types of personnel you can be playing in different positions. You really should tweak it to suit your your own system and your own players that you have. Yeah, I mean, height and jumping are really, really important here. I say all this because I used to have a five foot four midfielder and you can imagine the, the problems that it caused because the AI is always watching, isn't it? And it will seek to exploit things that you haven't even noticed. 
always. So like if you have a tall right back who's really dominant in the air, then you might want him back. But if you have a kind of smaller, quick right back who's always on the overlap, you probably don't want him marking the near post. And it's the same with all positions, same with tall wingers and smaller wingers and even your strikers. Over history, you've seen loads of strikers that have been really good kind of defensive headers of the ball and helping their team out in that side. Whereas if you had a small, quick striker, you probably don't want him marking your near post. See, I genuinely don't change my defensive set-piece plans from game to game. I do update them all at the beginning of the season to avoid this. And one of the things that I find, I, I generally have a six-foot-plus lone striker, and the default would have him sitting on the halfway line waiting for a ball. So just doing something as minor as uh, dropping him back to mark the edge of the six-yard box is, um, well, I mean, it probably saves you five to ten goals against you every season. Most definitely. You want your quick players up, staying high for the counter-attack, opposed to your bigger players, your more dominant aerially players. So um, I always personally bring that striker back either into the box or, like you said, at least to the edge of the area where you can kind of contribute to the fence. Now, for people who have got a lot of time on their hands, is there a clear benefit in setting up specific man-to-man marking routines? It all depends on your personnel. If I have five at the back and I've got three centre-backs on the pitch, I do like to do that because I've got enough players that can man-mark. But um, if I'm playing, say, a four at the back and I'm not really trusting more than two of my players to do a man-marking job, sometimes I just go mostly zonal. Maybe pick one or two um, players out if the opposition has someone that I'm really worried about from set pieces. But generally, it'll just be the same one game to game. For a lower maintenance mode, is is it worth taking those sort of five foot seven five foot eight players and just sticking them inside your posts because generally five foot seven five foot eight is enough to do what they're there for and just stop the ball going in isn't it it's just in front of them where you want the big lads yeah typically that'll be the um fullbacks i like to use my wingers in those positions and then have my fullbacks marking because they're generally a little bit better at defending and marking but again it always depends on your actual personnel whichever suits your team some people don't want anyone on the posts but i do prefer having someone there because it's it does save a couple goals a season Now, as someone who literally plays the game for a living, which I think technically makes you a professional football manager. I'll take that. Do you do that micromanagement? (laughs) Oh, I have to. Do you do that micromanagement? Do you do? do? Yeah, always, always. It just makes such a difference over the course of a season. If it was a one-off game, then I could see the argument for not doing it. But over a full league season and cup games and everything, it really does make the difference. And there's nothing really, in my opinion anyway, more frustrating than conceding a load of set pieces when you feel that it can be avoided just with maybe five minutes of tinking. Would you ever go the whole hog and actually scout a future opposition team and note down on paper where all their men stand and how big they are that probably a step too far for me however <laughs> i whenever i play burnley for some reason i always think i have to be terrified of their set pieces so i'll always try and like put together a plan and make sure i've got the right players in the right positions but sometimes i do just through the course of the season try to look out for what teams have been scoring goals from set pieces or who have a few defenders on high goal just so i'm not caught out or surprised when it comes to game day you can actually just use training, can't you? I mean, obviously, you still want to have a good plan in place, but coming up against a team like Burnley, it, it would be wise just to throw in defensive set-piece training. Yeah, maybe unfair on Burnley. I always do defensive set-piece training if I've got them coming up. But any team 
that I'm kind of expected to win against heavily. So if I'm a, if I'm near the top of the league and I'm playing a team towards the bottom, I like to throw in a defensive set piece trading just just on the thought that they're probably going to aim to get set pieces and that's their best chance of scoring against me. So always want to throw it into your training schedule here and there just so your team feels refreshed and your team feels good at it. And it's easy to only focus on the kind of attacking set piece routines when really you want to practice both sides. We should stress that there are ways to come up with attacking options out of a defensive set piece. Do you have any any sort of specific plans for a counter-attack? Oh, so me and Nick Madden, who, who was on here as well before, we actually have the opposite ways of approaching this. I like to leave two players on the edge of the area and nobody forward just to maximise my chances of actually getting it on the edge and then hope that those two quick players ah. can kind of do the run of the whole pitch where most people would like to have one player stay high, one player on the edge, which both can work. I've seen both work in the match engine. Again, it does also depend on what your personnel is. If you've kind of only got smaller, quicker players, you might want them a bit further back or you might want to keep two high. Or sometimes I've seen people keep three players up and have three players high and either force the opposition to keep three players back and sacrifice one of the players in the box or you can outnumber them if you do manage to win the first ball. Now, what I like to do is have the quickest player available to me on the edge of the box and the most cre- uh, sorry on the ed- on the halfway line and the most creative player available to me on the edge of the box with the thinking being if the ball goes to the most creative player he'll play the best pass it worries me that a it's only ever worked about once or twice a season and b that I cling to that as if I've finally cracked it and I know what I'm doing I guess all of this gets back to that fundamental question doesn't it do you treat every match on Football Manager as an individual challenge or should you just throw down a foundation at the start of the season and ride that continue button into the summer? I think the best way to be successful, just just my opinion, is a balance between the two. So I don't like to make too many changes week to week. I like to try and get into a routine of my team and let them become accustomed to the tactics. But at the same time, even if you're winning, you do have to be adaptable and have to tweak it. You never know what your position is going to throw at you as well, how the match might go. So I'm always kind of ready to change it, especially on the tactical side. But Week to week, I don't like to make too many changes, especially to like things like set pieces as well. All right, CJ Ransom, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. Thank you, guys. Good to be back. It's more than a score with Live Score. Legends of the game. So, what's all this about then? Well, with LiveScore, which I'm certain you've all downloaded for free from the App Store or Google Play, you get the latest action stats and analysis from around the world. Because we know with football it goes beyond scores. It's the stories from the pitch and the stands. Players and fans all spinning their own strands of the mighty football web that links us all together. And there's no better way to twang that web than by playing Football Manager. And because we've been doing it for so many years, we've made a few memories. Welcome to Legends of the Game. And today it's one of the all-time greats. It's Tonton Zolo Mukoku. You know this guy, don't you? Everyone knows this guy. He pops up at Derby County in CM3 and he's all about pace and flair and dribbling, allied to determination. Oh, if you can get him and develop him, he'll be lifting Champions League trophies for you for over a decade. In fact, he's so good, most CM players would eventually have to force themselves not to buy him because it was tantamount to cheating. 
And what we have here is really the opposite to the usual failed Wonder Kid vibe, because sadly Tonton's early life contains more tragedy than a simple failure to make the grade. Born in the Democratic Republic of Congo, he lost both his parents at the age of 10 and was raised by his brother, Fado. Fado was a student in Sweden and he brought Tonton out there to stay with him. Already a very talented footballer, Tonton soon caught the eye of a number of big Italian clubs while he was playing for Jugarden, eventually opting to move to Derby County because he spoke the language and he had relatives in England. He was an extremely bright prospect and he had just started training with the first team when he received the awful news that Fado, his brother and his mentor had died and the news broke him. He dropped out of football entirely and returned to Sweden. He would eventually make a comeback of sorts, playing second division Swedish football, playing for a spell in Finland, but it was never the same and he retired at the age of 28. However, he is now doing really well. He's a football agent in Sweden. He set up his own football team, Congo United FC, and he has ambitions to take them to the top. He's got a lovely wife and family, and I know this because in 2012, Tonton came over to London to help Backpage Press launch the Football Manager Stole My Life book that I co-authored with Neil White and Kenny Miller. He and his missus were absolutely wonderful. He even joined us in a five-a-side game against Tone Madeira, the sports interactive team. And he was, as you can imagine, brilliant at football, though it would be remiss of me not to mention that he showboated a last-minute penalty kick wide and cost us the game. Anyway, if you want to know more about Tonton, look out the brilliant interview with uh, Jack Kenmare on Sports Bible. We'll stick that out on Twitter as well. And we salute you, Tonton, a genuine legend of the game. That was It's More Than a Score with Live Score Legends of the Game. You can get real-time updates and results, match highlights and breaking news from around the football world on the Live Score app and... It's completely free. Just search for it on the App Store or Google Play now. This episode of the Football Manager Show nearly didn't get written. And who do I blame for that? The Athletic. Their commitment to authentic, well-sourced, authoritative long reads meant that it was 10.30am before I got round to writing this script. I couldn't get enough of their club-specific where-it-all-went-wrong-or-right long reads. So if you want to slow yourself down in the workplace, why don't you get yourself a subscription now? Go to theathletic.com forward slash fmpod, and if you've never subscribed before, you can get six months for six quid. Go on, visit theathletic.com forward slash fmpod today, and you too could find yourself scrambling like mad to catch up in the afternoon. Now, if you're anything like me, I'm sorry. It's awful to live like this, it really is. But you will have watched the unfolding drama at Everton with a mixture of morbid curiosity and hunger. How is it possible you will have asked yourself to spend so much money and build such a bad, incoherent football club? And you, if you're like me, will have immediately wanted to start a new game managing them. Well... We're here for you, because it really isn't easy. Uh, the club's an absolute mess. Uh, the expectations are much higher than a narrow escape from relegation. You start off with loads of injuries and absences, and, well, look, I'll level with you. I gave it a try, and I quit after six games because it was genuinely making me unhappy. So let's bring in some expertise. Please welcome Mr. Patrick Boyland from The Athletic, our Everton correspondent. Patrick, how are you? I'm good. I'm a lot better now that the season's finished and Everton have finally secured their survival for, for another year. Been a bit of a mad season and for some of the reasons you've touched on there, it's, it, it's been quite an interesting one to follow. The club 
this closely throughout the campaign. The overriding sentiment is one of relief at this moment in time. They're an extraordinary club. I think they they sort of serve a purpose to the rest of the Premier League because no one else can really whinge if they're not an Everton fan. (laughs) Just to see it all going so horribly wrong. It must have been extraordinary to cover it from such close quarters and just have, you know, every week bringing something new. Yeah, absolutely. And it's from the sublime, really, to the ridiculous. At times it looks like they've turned a corner. I think back to... Even last season, the the middle of last season, where they were second in the table under Carlo Ancelotti on Boxing Day, and then dramatically fell off to finish 10th behind Leeds in that particular season. Ancelotti goes then that summer and Rafa Benitez comes in. I suppose everything spirals from there. So a, a remarkable 12 to 24 months covering the club, I'd say. You, you're definitely right in, in pointing out that from afar, you, you do kind of wonder how Everton have got it so badly wrong. And in particular with the amount of money spent early in, into Farhad Mashiri's tenure, so around 2016, 17, 18, those years, that feast has been replaced by famine. So over the summer, Rafa Benitez spent only 1.7 million combined on f- five signings. The only player that came in for a fee was was Damari Gray. So it's not easy from a football manager squad building point of view to to even know where to begin with this Everton squad because there are so many holes as you say now if you're starting the game at home and you do have the choice to start at the beginning of the season with the Rafa Benitez squad which still includes Lucas Digny or you can you can pick up at the end of the transfer window when it won't include him there's no real right answer to that but let's let's talk about the squad are there key players that you can build a team around there I think there are I look at Jordan Pickford in goal who ended the season very very well Dominic Calvert-Lewin up front if he stays fit for long enough alongside him Richarlison whether you play him as a centre forward or as a, as a wide player I think he's effective in either role Alan and Ducore you've got in Alan and Ducore you've got two solid maybe slightly unspectacular central midfielders but solid Premier League midfielders I'd say in defence I think a lot depends on whether Yerry Mina I don't know what he's like fitness wise on football manager in, in real life if he stays fit, Everton tend to win games of football. And if he doesn't, the Everton defence looks vulnerable. A lot rests on his availability. So they're the players I tend to build around. And then the rest, I, I, I suppose, is much of a muchness. And a question that's as relevant for the start of this game as it is for right now this summer. Who are the players that are earning big wages that you would want to sell to help fund the rebuild? I think the really interesting thing with Everton is that they, they have some players on big wages that will leave at the end of their contract so in fact Fabian Delft's contract's up he's a high earner relatively by even Everton's standards Cenk Tosin the Turkish forward he, he's left and he, he will not be offered an extension so he goes Donny van der Beek who came in on loan from Manchester United he was on around 100 grand a week he will go back to Manchester United now uh, Eric Ten Hag's in situ there uh, so they are losing a lot of wages when Everton really looked like they could go this season, I started to look at the wage bill or what we believe to be the, the wage bill and looking really at the high earners and the middle earners, the players that you would need to get off the books to to kind of reduce uh, your wage bill in, in the championship. And I found that the issue wouldn't necessarily have been the top, top earners, people like Jordan Pickford, Richarlison, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. You'd easily find homes for those guys. But it was more your, your kind of your middle to high earners. So let's say, for example, an Andre Gomez, 
who came in from Barcelona. And his stock at that point was still relatively high. He was still in the Portugal squad. Looked like a decent acquisition for Everton off the back of a successful loan spell. But very quickly picked up an injury that has more or less completely derailed everything since. Players like Andre Gomez, the ones that Everton have to worry about. I suppose the issue for Everton is they they wanted to cut the wage bill. They wanted to get those guys off the books, but there weren't many buyers. Sensible clubs in the Premier League have got that money. They don't want those guys. And, and, and quite simply, as, as I put it on another podcast, those guys would not be paid anything like the equivalent money elsewhere, anywhere away from Everton in the Premier League or, or a top European league. It's extraordinary, isn't it? That From the outside, it seems like the the club has has just never settled on on what it wants to be since Roberto Martinez went, and it's made up of five or six different managers, different ideas of what constitutes an Everton player. It's just like a lot of fractured bits of dropped plate right now. Do you think there's a willingness in the club to actually lay down foundations and become something now? I think there is now finally a willingness, purely because they've they've seen how bad it could get potentially and. I suppose we have to look at this season, the culmination of this season and survival as a dodged bullet. They've, they've not been relegated. They've, they've not plummeted to the extent they maybe could have done in certain, certain circumstances of being different. So I think what we will now see is a pivot from, from what we hear to towards what I hope to be a more sensible strategy overall, both in terms of recruitment and also with, with managerial appointments. There are some reasons to be positive if you look really, really hard. I mean, the academy has got a really good record of bringing free players and the manager, yeah, may, maybe by necessity more than anything else at Chelsea, also has a record of bringing free really good players. Who's good in the under-23s and the under-18s that people might not have heard of? Well, I suppose the big one this year has been Anthony Gordon, who's bridged quite a cavernous gap between under-23 football and the Premier League relatively successfully this year. I still think there are elements in his game that he needs to work on. Um, there's a lot of industry, a lot of endeavour, and he's he's particularly pacey. I think he's good one-on-one with defenders, but his end ball is still lacking, particularly from set pieces. And he'll need to add more goals and assists to his game if he wants to stay in. In terms of the best products from below, I think Lewis Dobbin, a young forward who's been capped by England at youth level, he's one to look out for in the future can play across the forward line. At the moment, I see him as somebody who probably is best just off the left. Again, pacey, direct, dynamic, could fit into a high-pressing system if that's the way Everton want to play moving forward. He's one to keep an eye out for. The club really have high hopes for Isaac Price, an under-23s midfielder who came off the bench in the drubbing at Arsenal on the final day of the campaign. He's received positive plaudits from from Frank Lampard and Lampard's assistant Joe Edwards and seems to have an awful lot going for him as a box-to-box midfielder. Kind of does a a little bit of everything, um, but has a terrific engine for someone so slight and still so young. For quite a while now, Isaac Price has been one they've tipped for future success. And then even further back, there's a young centre-half in the under-23s called Reese Welsh, who has also been on the first-team bench in, in recent months. He's kind of six foot two and, and, and dominating. He's very good on the ball, very good in possession, and again has been capped by England. So th- there are prospects coming through. I think there are reasons to be cheerful from, from an Everton perspective here. There's also the uh, the long-awaited new stadium. Now, personally, I'll be very sad because when I was a roving reporter for ESPN, a trip to Goodison was always um, 
warmly welcomed. It's such a fantastic place to watch football. Mm. But if you know you're listening to this and you're thinking, no, there's no way I'm going to manage Everton. There is a new stadium coming that could prove transformative, couldn't it? They hope it will be yes. So that that that's still a few years off, and I think that's basically seen as the thing that can allow them to compete financially, commercially, with the established or what, what what kind of people deem to be the established top six or seven in the Premier League now. There is still a huge gap in revenue between Everton and even an Arsenal or a Tottenham at the bottom of, of the top six in terms of kind of financial power and prowess. And I don't think they can bridge that gap easily. So a new stadium with more corporate boxes, better gate receipts, that can help. I also think, though, there's an element here of to improve commercially, you need to be playing in Europe's top competitions. That's when you can really command the big bucks. So I don't think it's a one-stop shop in terms of fixing everything where Everton are concerned, but it will definitely help. And they believe it will be transformative, not just to the club's fortunes, but also the city of Liverpool's fortunes, particularly that area just north of the city centre. So, so yes, that, that that's going to be an important thing. And I think the other thing to say here is that it's just as well Everton had Goodison during this relegation battle because it, it's felt as though Goodison has almost kind of willed Everton on, that the atmosphere, the intensity of the stadium, the proximity to the pitch of fans has added a new dimension. It, it, it spurred the team on um, and there have been some really memorable nights though particularly the recent one against Crystal Palace so maybe a reminder that although the new stadium is very much needed to help Everton compete in the long run it will be a huge loss when Goodison is finally gone and Everton have to move on to pastures new all right well if you're listening then um, you're probably twitching with anticipation at what you can do it is the uh, the ultimate Premier League fixer-upper opportunity get Everton back to where they were in the mid-80s when they were arguably the best team in Europe Patrick thank you so much for joining us where can we find more stuff from you yeah, so you can find all our stuff on the Everton feed. So that's from myself and fellow Everton correspondent, Greg O'Keefe. Go onto the Athletics website and, and there's a dedicated Everton feed there with articles almost daily. We'll be doing a lot more audio stuff over the course of the summer, particularly on the, the live rooms function on the website. And then my Twitter profile as well is at Paddy underscore Boyland. You can find most of my work and other inane thoughts on, on, my, uh, on my Twitter page. That's what we're here for. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Welcome back to the FM Confessional. Um, I think so many of us play this game. We play it in different ways. Most of us are good, honest and moral football managers some of us are not and i'd imagine that that eats you up inside and, and that's why we have this section so that you can come to us you can unburden yourself of of your guilt uh, to father stephen and we can decide on a, an appropriate penance before you can uh, be welcomed back into the fold father stephen how are you after last week i'm well ian my son i'm well i've taken some time to convalesce to take on board and, and think about all of the sinners that we've brought towards the light. Yes, uh, ne never any more wretched example of man's inhumanity to man than uh, Nicola Bouya last week. 
changing the names of his friends' players and replacing the A-team with the B-team. Appalling stuff. I still feel quite dirty. Are you ready for another one? I believe so. Like I say, I've taken time, I've contemplated, I've uh, refreshed and reinvigorated myself. I'm ready to hear again the sins of this FM universe of ours. Okay, Andre Bogassian writes, says, I'm a huge fan of the show since the very first episodes. Your show reignited my passion for the game in 2020. Don't think you can talk your way into our good books, Andre. We know what you are. Uh, after so long away, I was scared of the different animal I would face. Uh, the game had become more complex, but I bought FM21, began a save with the team I support, Fluminense just to get a hold on the game, but it kind of took off, playing a 4-3-3 vertical tiki-taka with a mixture of veterans, including a blockbuster signing Paulinho, a near-post corner routine, and a bit of luck, I got to the Libertadores final. And then, obviously, I got completely FM'd by Racing Club de Avalanada in the final. Soul-crushing. But on the cutscene, back to the menu, my laptop froze. Froze for far more than usual. And... I didn't wait to see if it would crash completely. In, in that one or two seconds of panic, I thought that my laptop was protecting me against this evil spreadsheet of a game. So I did what needed to be done. Control, Alt, Delete. <sighs> then he replays the game, because obviously, and it bugged him. He said I couldn't even watch my team on the field. I turned the highlights off, I left the room, I went to the kitchen to wash the dishes, and when I came back, we were the champions of South America with a comfortable 2-0 win. And now, now I just can't click on the Football Manager logo on my desktop anymore. It was so traumatic, it just didn't feel right to continue that save. But on the other hand, I had so much time invested in it, I had absolutely no energy to start another one. I was already building myself up to play F1 Manager whenever it comes out to see me through until FM23, but, but then your show and the FM Confessional came to help. The last episode gave me hope of repentance. Please, give me guidance through these dark times. Father Stephen, what, what, what do you think we do with Andre? Mm, well, i sometimes wondering if we've got our messaging a bit confused because it feels like we're becoming both an FM confessional and a computer help store in, in terms of I feel like this could have been an avoidable sin to commit here from Andre. Had he, again, made sure his laptop was in a condition to play the game, properly and, and, and not freeze if that is obviously possible so this is an avoidable sin to have committed some would argue and far more egregious ones have been in previous episodes but I do think just so Andre can move on as much as, as, as anyone else and come back to the game that there must be a mild penance for this I think it's a mild sin I mm. think there was genuine fear that the game had crashed and we've all had that where it just sits there ticking over for way too long I, I think on some level, his subconscious has seen an opportunity there. Mm. Uh, and, and I think he's acted rashly, but I'm not mm. sure he's acted out of malice. What do you think? I think the point about the subconscious is the fact he had the possibility of taking the road towards the sin and, and did indeed walk down it. I wonder whether that walking away, was there some sense of absenting himself from responsibility and then taking that the win? So a mild punishment, and I wonder... What are your thoughts in terms of what sort of punishment should be there? Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe he's got to serve something. Because I think on some level he knows what he did. Mm. He's saying that he's going to play F1 manager whenever it's out. I believe it's out quite soon. Mm. I would say that his first game, he's got to manage Aston Martin. Because they are rubbish. <laughs> 
They are just not picking up points anywhere. He can do that and he can think about what he's done. And then and then I think he can come back into the fold. Should we say for at least one sort of preparatory season up to the first race, one Grand Prix and as I believe uh, Sebastian Vettel is at Aston Martin, is he not? And after numerous overtakes for, by far faster, better put together cars, should be a lesson to Andre. And then after that, he'll be able to return to the fold. Exactly. Now, if you've got a confession for us, you can send it to the same place that you send your letters. And you can write to us about anything, really. Issues with the game, questions you want answered, or just to show off about how very well you're doing. We always admire and appreciate that. It is imacintosh at theathletic.com. There's a Twitter account, uh, Ian underscore games. That's Ian spelt correctly with two eyes. Top of the letters pile. Well, 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 it's our old friend, producer Steve, from last week. Ah, yes, Nicola Wea has uh, got back in touch. I'm surprised that they are prepared to show their face, so to speak, or their letter signature after last week. However, welcome, Nicola. We welcome all characters into the FM show shelter here. So Nicola says, hello. I just wanted to say thanks for having my confession on the podcast. And I had no idea and I laughed my ass off when I heard it. That's not really the point, I don't think, is it, Ian? But there we go. We're not hearing repentance here, are we? Nicola has to say, everything is 100% true. I will accept your challenge and buy a trophy for my friend. It's the least that I can do. Keep up the great work. Peace and love from Sweden. That's Nico Buia. Excellent stuff. Taken like a legend. And welcome back to the fold. That really made us laugh last week. So, Nico, we're going to have a little uh, scout around the office, see what we can nick from TIFO uh, and send you a little parcel over because you have bought a trophy. And I, I think it's a very noble thing to do. Callum Higgins writes, I love the podcast. I enjoy listening on my lunchtime walk. Just to correct the last letter from last week's podcast, which asked for a new community challenge to get us through, and I quote, an international tournament-free summer. There is, in fact, a pretty big international tournament going on this summer, the Women's Euros, which is being hosted in the UK. Callum's got tickets, which are pretty cheap, and are still on sale through UEFA's website. His suggestion for a community challenge is, therefore, that we all support our national women's team over the summer and get to as many games as possible. It would be good for FM players to build up their knowledge of women's football, as Sports Interactive are, of course, planning to integrate the women's game in the future, too. Yeah, absolutely right. Can't believe I didn't even notice that as I read it out. And if you're looking for coverage of the Women's Euros, uh, you know where to go, don't you? Yeah, The Athletic. They're going really, really big on this. Um, so there's going to be some amazing stuff from a lot of very, very good writers. So uh, thanks for writing in with that, Callum. Who else have we got, Steve? Nicole Andrews writes in and they say hello to the award-winning Ian Trademark and the award-winning producer Steve Trademark. Well, thank you very much, Nicole. That's very kindly to say. And of course, you may enter. Nicole has long been concerned that I was the only person to get attached to digital players who become club legends. But the pod has helped provide some reassurances that if I am insane, at least I'm not the only one. You are very much amongst friends here in that regard, Nicole. She says that every season I buy at least one shirt for the club I manage. And at the end of the season, I print my favourite player on the back. So whether that be Giacomo Setti, an Italian new-gen centre-back who was signed at 18, who was going to be fourth choice, ended up being the best player. Within weeks of that, captain my beloved Birmingham City to 10 Champions League titles, 10. And on FM19 got bids of 235 million. So that's a, a new-gen legend worth printing a shirt for. There was Danny Loder from Fleetwood and FM21. 
took him from League One to Champions League winners in four seasons. But Nicole has also gone the other way because their fiancé has suggested managing Cork City as one of her fiancé's favourite YouTubers is from the area. But I decided that if I had to slog through the early stages of European competition qualifying, that she should too. So Nicole used the editor to add her fiancé in as her assistant manager. And so she's strapped in for the whole journey. Additionally, Ian, there are some questions for your good self. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, number one. Who is your favourite ever FM new gen slash regen? That would be probably little Davy Rogers, a Scotsman who came through at Man United years ago. He was basically like a little Billy Bramner and I was his Don Revy. That's lovely. That's a nice little image there. Yeah, aggressive little bastard, kept getting sent off. <laughs> but I like that you can take that out of him. It would be half the player. Absolutely, absolutely. So question number two. Who is your favourite ever real player, but in the FM context? Uh, without a shadow of a doubt, Antoine Sibierski on FM 07, he was king of the near post corner. Honestly, you could get anyone promoted if you had him at the near post. He scored, I think, 35, 40 goals for my Norwich team. Wow. Uh, unbelievable. Utterly unexpected. Wonderful, wonderful footballer. Okay, final question from Nicole. What's been the moment outside of the athletic sphere, perhaps, that FM and reality have collided for you in the most spectacular way? That was definitely playing FM06 on my lunch break when I worked for icons.com with my colleague, former Arsenal and Southend winger, Adrian Clark. And then in the game we were playing, I signed Adrian Clark from, I think he was at Stevenage at the time. In real life, he was in Stevenage. He used to come to work during the day and then go off for training in the evening. And I signed him for Liverpool. And guy, his little face just lit up. It was, it was wonderful. And also very weird, like multiverse <laughs> fracturing into multiverse there. Oh, it's really quite a heartwarming story, that. It's really nice. I still thought you could cut it. I, th I still thought you could cut <laughs> it at the top. So I hope those, those, those questions have been answered for you there, Nicole. She ends saying, keep up the fantastic work. Much love and I'll stress. These are her words. The Royal Horticultural Society. Yes, Nicole. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's the only language they understand. So that's from Nicole slash Nikki. Excellent. We'll put them back on their knees in the mud where they belong. Matthew Lomas writes, I've typically gone for classic one-club dynasty type games, but this year I wanted to try something different. Taking inspiration from the many journeyman challenges out there, I've embarked on a European adventure with a bit of a catch. Starting unemployed, I loaded every league in Europe, but for the big five, I set them to view only because the objective here is to find success outside of the traditional powerhouse leagues. So there are some rules. Manage for 30-plus seasons. Manage at least 10 different clubs. Manage a top-tier team across four different countries. Learn five new languages. Topple a powerhouse team in any league. He found his first job in Iceland. He was there for two years. He moved on to the Czech Republic, got them uh, Vlasim. He got them into the top flight. Moved to a bigger job and uh, Jablonek. Uh, he beat Sparta and Slavia Prague and Victoria Poulsen and Banneker Strava and all the rest of them. And he won the league and cup double. So mission accomplished. Got to the final of the Conference League but went down to Valencia 3-0. He's in season seven of this, almost a third of the way through. And he's off to return Saskia Sofia to the pinnacle of Bulgarian football. Something that hasn't been done since 2008. He is writing about this as well. If you want to find out more he has a thread on the si community forums detailing the challenge if you just look for an adventure in europe at europe's outskirts you will find matthew lomas's work 
Great. So Steve Endersby is next up. And Steve writes in to say, I was listening to the latest FM pod today. Great show. I'm a big fan. Toll paid. Absolutely, Steve. Toll paid. And heard you mention a possible new listener challenge. Essentially, I found myself wondering what would happen if the Chelsea takeover fell through and decided that in my new fantasy world, the FA would sell their license to the highest bidder and the new Premier League club would be born. I obviously knew this wouldn't happen in real life, but promoting the losing playoff finalists didn't seem quite as fun. Steve continues to say, as I've been reading Wings of Change, a book by Karen Tujwani about Red Bull's foray into the world of football, I decided to try my hand at constructing a new Red Bull team through the editor. I've not created a club in there before, but I've tested it and I seem to have got it all right after many, many edits. And so Red Bull Oxford were born. Red Bull Oxford play at the new 43,500 capacity Red Bull Arena in the beautiful Witham Woods, an area just outside of Oxford, and have a training facility and smaller reserve stadium nearby in the new Red Bull Village Complex. They've hired a full first team staff, including nicking Chelsea's Bruce Buck to become chairman and Marina Grenovskaya as director of football. Some of the other appointments came from other Red Bull team's staff and have also set up affiliations with their teams in Germany, Austria, Brazil, and New York, as well as uh, Oxford City and Oxford United, who I'm fond of in real life and felt bad for, for dumping a super club on their doorstep, basically, I think is a point there. There are also a couple of members of staff in there for your own amusement. David Priest as a goalkeeping coach. and Wonderful man, wonderful man. <laughs> and formerly of the Athletic Parish, Tom Warville as a recruitment ah. analyst, of course, in real life at RB Leipzig these days no they finally escaped from the scattergram <laughs> steve ends his letter to say i doubt this is the challenge you wanted to set for everyone but as i was doing this for myself i thought i'd send it over and see what you guys think am i mad have i gone too deep no nothing wrong with this perfectly rational behavior um if you want to see it and by god he's done the uh, the kit and the badge and everything Follow him on Twitter at Enders underscore FM. That's E-N-D-E-R-S underscore FM. It was retweeted down the Ian Games Twitter feed as well. So you can find all the information there, including a link to the database. So you can have a crack at it yourself. And if you do that, make sure you let us know how it went. And you do that the same old way. I'm Akintosh at theathletic.com. And that was the Football Manager Show, sponsored by LiveScore. Your guests today were Patrick Boyland of The Athletic and CJ Ransom of Sports Interactive. Your producer was Steve Hankey, and I'm Sigourney Weaver. The Athletic.